Hey everyone, welcome back to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which I also have. We also call it VEDS. And today I have a special guest for Reds for VEDS Day. She's going to share her story with VEDS, and this is Destiny. Hey, Destiny. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. I've wanted to interview you for so long. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> um, so I thought that you would be a really amazing guest for Reds for Veds Day because I feel like you're such an important person in the group and a great advocate for people. And your dog is also famous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm really excited to be able to be here. I'm really looking forward to, to hearing more about your story. So how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? I actually just turned 27 about two weeks ago. So. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> I wonder if you used to, you must have a birthday very close to mine. <laughs> April Fool's Day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mine's the third. Okay, so yeah, very close. <laughs> very close. Very, very close. And when were you diagnosed with VEDS? I was diagnosed when I was four years old after a bowel rupture. When I was young, I had just come home from preschool and my dad gave me what's called like a bear hug where it's like they give you a really tight hug and mm -hmm. it actually ended up rupturing my intestine. And if we fast forward a little bit, um, in I woke up in Milwaukee. I'm from Wisconsin. I woke up in Milwaukee with a temporary ileostomy after a bowel rupture, at which case they finally decided to do testing and it came back positive for vascular Ehlers-Danlos. So what made them think of VEDS? Uh, so my mom actually had, vas or had vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and she had asked, she advocated for all of her kids to get testing, but at the time they wouldn't do it because I didn't look like VEDS. I didn't have the classic you know, wide eyes, all that whole look. So they said, oh no, she doesn't have VEDS, we don't need to do the testing. And even as, you know, I got a little older, I had the, con you know, the constant bruising, all the issues, and my mom kept saying, you know, I really think she has it, I really think she has it, and they would not do the test. And finally, after this, you know, life-threatening incident, they said, oh, we should probably test her. <laughs> and voila, I have VEDS. <laughs> wow. And yeah. did, do you know how your mom found out she had VEDS? I actually don't know. Um, so like I said, she passed when I was young, but I believe what happened was she had an aneurysm, and I think it was like my grandmother had an aneurysm. My grandmother had like a sudden, like she died when she was like very early in her early 40s. Mm -hmm. And I think it was my mom was diagnosed in her 20s after, um, she was, it was while she was giving it was like after she was giving birth to my oldest brother, there was a, com a major complication during birth or pregnancy or something. I don't yeah. know the exact story. So not long after you were diagnosed, your mother passed away? Oh, yes. So she actually passed away from an aortic dissect, an aortic rupture. Um, she was at home and I was actually home. We lived in this like little farmhouse in Wisconsin. And she was doing something in the bathroom. My dad heard a fall and went in and she was already gone. And when they did an autopsy later, they found that her aorta had completely like ruptured. They weren't mm. sure if it was an aneurysm or if it was just the aorta itself. But 
And yeah. how old were you at that time? Were you still four years old? I was, I think I was five or just turning five. It was shortly before, it was shortly after my diagnosis, like eight or nine months. So it was wow. right before my fifth birthday. So your dad ended up being a, a big advocate for you. <laughs> my dad was my best friend. Tell me more about him. He knew about everything. Um, he was, I was the only, like, I have a sister, but um, she was more of a tomboy. So I was, like, the only kind of girl. I had four brothers, and he spoiled me rotten, and I was the youngest, and then I had the issues. So he just spoiled me, and he was, like, completely <laughs> my best friend. Um, he, like, was really good about advocating for me, but he was also really good about, like, privacy and teaching me to advocate for myself. Like, once I hit probably about, like, eight or nine, it was, like, oh, no, you need to tell me, like, what VEDS is when you go into the doctor. Because I kind of looked at him, like, are you coming? He's like, no, I think you can handle it now. And so I'd automatically go in and be like, so I was so used to my dad speaking up that he kind of taught me, like, nope, it's your turn now. So mm -hmm. I started to speak up for myself and thankfully learned that at a young age and, yeah, just kind of kept doing it. And he passed away um, just three years ago from pancreatic cancer. And we, it was kind of, it was, well, it was extremely unexpected. He had um, a lot of cardiac issues. He was definitely not beds, um, but he had already had like a quintuplet bypass and his brother before that had passed away waiting for a heart transplant. We had a lot of heart disease in our family. And then um, we thought he was dealing with some heart issues. So we brought him to Massachusetts again. He had a scan and um, they decided to send him to the uh, GI doctor that I see and a GI doctor um, was like, Bill, you know, if I'm going to be honest with you, I think you have cancer, but I'm going to send you for a scan to be sure. And sure enough, when they scanned him, he was riddled with um, stage four pancreatic cancer. He still mm -hmm. decided to try to fight, but about four months later, we lost him. I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. That was about four years ago? Uh, almost. It's three. It'll be three four in ago. December. Yeah. Wow. So. That was probably the hardest time of my life, <laughs> was losing him. I bet. I mean, that was the, the major advocate and, and parent for you your, most yeah. of your life. Yeah. And so I just try to, you know, keep him in my mind every day. And it's like, you know, anytime I see someone struggling, I try to think of my dad and, you know, what my dad would do and try to just continue to make him happy and like to think that he's still looking down on me and still able to see what's going on. That's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when he told you you had VEDS? How did he break that? Like, how did he tell a young child? <laughs> so he actually told me that I was, so we had the, I had an obsession with porcelain dolls when I was young, which if I think back now, they're so creepy. Like they creep me out <laughs> so much right now. But when I was young, I had like, oh gosh, like probably like 15 or more. Whoa. Like just, I was obsessed. <laughs> and he was always the one buying them for me. And there's this one doll that I had, and I had broken it, and he used to, like, always glue it and fix it. And he'd always tell me, like, she's going to be okay. She's just going to have a couple scars. You know, my favorite <laughs> my favorite doll, you know. And just made the doll even creepier. But anyways, <laughs> take my adult mind away from the, the creepy porcelain dolls. Um, he actually told me, he's like, do you know that favorite doll? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you're a lot like that doll. He's like, you're, fro you're very fragile. You may break but you always get put back together again and you're stronger every time from it. And that's something that I always keep in the back of my mind. 
you know, always just made me feel like porcelain doll. And I know that kind of sounds strange, but when you think of this specific porcelain doll <laughs> that had been broken so many times and glued back together, and he used to put like a Band-Aid on it, like things like that, like you would for a little kid. And <laughs> then as I got older, he explained to me actually what vascular EDS is and all the things that come with it. But in a four-year-old mind, it was I was like my porcelain doll. I could break, but I was strong. What an adorable way to break the news to your child. Yeah. <laughs> I always think of that. I'm like, whenever I see someone in the group that has, you know, just been diagnosed, I'm always like, does your kid like dolls? And I'm like, I probably sound like such a creeper. Like, but it's just the easiest way I could think about trying to explain to a kid what, what EDS is. And I'm like, I probably sound so nuts. I think that's a really cute way to break it to a child. And like yeah. child, children understand that porcelain dolls are fragile. Yeah. And I mean, especially like, and I tell you how many times I broke this doll because it like, it would come outside with me. It would come on like trips with me and like, <laughs> you know, something that the porcelain doll shouldn't do. Yeah. And he always fixed it. Like always did. My dad was always Mr. Fix It. it always was. That is <laughs> so cute. It was just the easiest way for my four-year-old brain to understand it. And then as I got older, he actually explained a little bit more about what it was. And then with the help of, you know, Dr. Google, I could understand a little more about it too. Mm -hmm. So I know you've had your, your, your intestinal rupture when you were four. Yeah. Um, what other kinds of GI issues have you had? Oh, that's a loaded one. So I don't know if like VEDS can manifest in one spot, but I swear to God, if it could, it's my GI tract. <laughs> <laughs> I have... Um, so first thing, obviously, was when I was four and I had my temporary ileostomy. They were able to reverse that, I think probably when I was around six, and it was successful. It just took a long time to heal, but it was successful. Mm -hmm. And then I had my next rupture when I was 14 and did not require a bag that time, but I had um, an NG tube for quite a while. And that An NG tube is like a feeding tube, right? Yeah. Um, so this one was, yeah, it was a feeding tube. Um, this one, this particular time, I had one that was going into my stomach, and it was helpful. Um, and then the next rupture that I had was another, yeah, another uh, bowel rupture. And I don't think there was even any impact. It was just like sudden onset of crazy mm -hmm. amount of pain. When was when I was... Uh, when was Tewksbury? 19, I think is when it was, 19 or 20, somewhere in that time period. And um, sure enough, they went in, they saw it, and at this point I had had so much scar tissue and so much stuff had like kind of adhesions and whatnot had built up that they had to remove a lot of um, my colon. So I ended up, what I now have is a permanent ileostomy. And it's an adjustment, but it does work. And shortly, sometime in between all that, I started dealing with something called gastroparesis. A lot of people with VEDS will probably know this term, but it means like your stomach is paralyzed. Mm -hmm. um, I was having a lot of vomiting issues. I couldn't keep down water. I couldn't keep down meds. After seeing my GI so many times, they did a, like a special study. They were able to see how long it took the food, and you have to eat this like radioactive food, and they can the, physically the wash swallow? it. No, it's called a gastric emptying study. And okay. it's literally you eat eggs and toast and it's covered in dye. Ooh. And you eat it and then you have to sit under this machine for however long it takes for it to move throughout your entire digestive tract. In my case, it was literally, uh, we reached 11 hours and they stopped the test because it was all still in my stomach. 
that wow. hadn't moved at all, at all into any part. And it typically, like a normal person's, is about three hours to see it start moving through. And mine was not moving at all. At which point, I saw my GI again, and he's like, it's time for you to start what's called TPN, which is um, feeding that goes through your vein. So I had a pick line placed, and we were doing that, and that was working well until I had a bad infection go through my pick line, and I ended up septic, and they had to pull it. And he's finally like, okay, it's time that we have to do surgery. I was trying to avoid surgery on you. He's like, but we have no choice. I need to place what's called a J-tube, which is um, a feeding tube that's in your, it goes through your abdomen, but it goes into your intestine, so it bypasses your stomach, so it just feeds directly into your intestine. And he was trying to avoid it because of all the complications we have with surgery. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I was like, but is there any guarantee that this will even work? And he said, no. He's like, but we can give it a try with something called an NJ tube. So it's a tube that starts from your nose that goes into your intestine and feeds you. So we tried that for six weeks, and it was actually successful. I wasn't vomiting. My meds were actually staying down, and I was actually keeping at a consistent weight. So we went forward with the surgery, and I had major complications with my surgery at first. The tube, um, they placed what's called a PEG-J at first. It's to form a special tract so that the tube can, well, basically, it'll be easy to reinsert because they have to replace this tube every three months. Oh, so wow. they start off, yeah, so they start off with a very large tube um, in a specific type, and that holds, like, internal bumpers with, um, it's, like, around 60 stitches with these weird bumpers inside. The surgery was easily the most painful one that I ever had, and when I woke up, I was like, this just doesn't feel right, and they're like, no, it's just, it's your, your bowels asleep, and because you have the ileostomy, like, it's gonna, it's gonna take a little bit, and I'm like, Okay, if you say so, but I wasn't <laughs> confident. And at this time, I was um, in Tewksbury Hospital because I was recovering from a wheelchair thing, which we can get into later. Mm -hmm. So I went back there, and then they were like, okay, we're going to put your meds through your tube. And so they put it through, and it all came pouring out of my incision. It wasn't going through my tube oh at all. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, this is not normal. <laughs> this is not okay. I was like, I told them at the hospital, and they're like, yeah, we're going to send you back. They sent me back to the hospital. And it turns out that this tube, my body couldn't hold the internal stitches or the bumpers. And so it, like, ripped through this tract that oh it was supposed gosh. to have formed. And it coiled up, like, underneath my ribs. So we had to redo it. And then this basically happened, like, three more times. And I was at the point where I was like, I give up. Let's go back to this, you know, TPN thing. I don't care if I get septic. And he's like, no, I have one more, like, trick up my sleeve. He brought in Dr. Black, and Dr. Black like went through. He's like, if we do this other type of tube, we're not going to treat you like a normal patient, finally. We're going to treat you like <laughs> a bad patient and not do like a normal surgery. We're going to do like we would like almost like on an infant, a way smaller tube and not worry about this whole tract forming thing. Mm -hmm. And it worked. And as the surgery was long, and but I finally did work. Now I'm seven years out. I still have my J-tube, and it's like the world's like godsend to me. That's so. amazing. Yeah. So there's my GI story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, the amount, it took them three tries for them to be like, oh, we're not going to treat you like a... Finally. Yeah. Wow. And that was, and I had Dr. Lindsay in on all this, but I mean, he's, you know, cardio. He's not exactly a GI surgeon. <laughs> so, I mean, having Dr. Black in was kind of like, no, let's 
let's try this a whole different way. And once they did that, it was like, oh, thank you. Now, when, when I go and get my tube replaced, because as I said, we have to do it about every three months, I try to push to every four because I'm like, eh, it gets me nervous to have it done. Yeah. It is a little more complicated because my tract isn't wide and big, can't hold like, you know, some people, like somebody without beds, they could probably get theirs done in like five minutes flat right at like their doctor's office. I have to go to interventional radiology, they have to have a surgeon, like they have to have everything right there, yeah. and they have to use a special type of um, guided wire of a certain size. Like it's a little bit more complicated, yeah. but it's obviously worth it. Now that we're seven years into it, we're all like, oh, okay, this is normal. This is how destiny does it. So <laughs> it's like, okay. Wow. So you mentioned yeah. in there um, your wheelchair. Yes. So that's fun. Um, <laughs> I was having, I think it was the surgery for my, I think it was after like my, I had a cardiac issue and we were trying to get it figured out and it was, there was an aneurysm and they were trying to do an ablation or something. And um, I had a reaction to the anesthesia and I'd never had a reaction to it before, but when I came out, I had a seizure and they didn't have the bed rails up all the way. And so I seized right out of the bed and the way that my body landed, I landed right, like, right in like the perfect position for um, my spine to break on like the left hand side. And then my left hip also dislocated completely out during the fall. And at that point, yeah, and at that point, there was a lot of discussion on, like, and I was temporarily paralyzed when I woke up. We didn't, there was no feeling, there was no movement, there was nothing. And um, this orthopedist came in, and he was confident that he'd be able to, you know, get it back. And they had never done anything like this on a VEDS patient, and I'd never heard of anyone. This was shortly after I created the Facebook group (laughs) to find (laughs) somebody that had been through this. Um, They hadn't. And so we decided to go ahead and go forth. They put this um, little rod that, like, basically stabilized the bottom part of my spine with, like, the nerve. Then they fixed my hip while they were in at the same time. And while I woke up, I did have the feeling back and all was going well. And I was like, okay, like, we're good. And they sent me to um, a very, like, uh, well-known rehabilitation hospital here that's, like, the best at spinal injuries. And so I went in, and they're like, okay, we're ready today for you to get up and start walking. And then while the process, like, for healing was way slower, but they were like, you know, we're confident that you can start walking. I had been able to move my legs up and down, and things were going well. And mm-hmm. then um, got up, and I was using the walker, and I was like, oh, we're doing this. I was so happy. And then, like, I suddenly I got, like, numbness again, and I fell. And then my left hip went out again, and oh. it basically undid the entire surgery all over again. And then when we spoke to the orthopedist at this point, he's like, what I think happened is that your body couldn't hold the metal rod where I placed it, and it had shifted because you started to move and, like, quote-unquote, overdo it, even though you really couldn't, but in that way, yeah, he thought that it was because the body, like, the connective tissues were too weak to hold it in place. It shifted, Mm -hmm. and it caused that paralysis again. And because everything was just weaker, that hip was already weak, it caused it to go out again. And so we debated redoing the surgery, decided against it, didn't want to redo it. And so all he did was kind of go in. He took out the rod, was able to replace, like, not replace, but uh, 
basically fix where he had put the rod. He mm -hmm. replaced like with a cadaver bone or whatever. We knew that it wasn't going to allow walking again. Like we knew that, you know, I'm not going to go on a five mile walk. I'm not going to be able to do this, but I'm still able to bear a little bit of weight. I'm able to like do kind of like pivot transfers, things like that, but I can't actually physically walk any further much more without the potential of both my hips going out and that paralysis setting in again. How Hence old are you when this happened? In a wheelchair. I was just 19, 19 turning 20. How did that, that feel? It was, it was hard. So I'm typically this like bubbly, happy girl. And that put me in probably one of my most depressed states. Um, I ended up at this hospital, I was there for eight months. And then from there, I went to a state, like a state hospital, because I couldn't get the care at home that I needed. And I ended up being in that home for, or in that hospital for four and a half years. And I was the most depressed that I'd ever been. I, when I first got the wheelchair, I kept throwing it like away from the room. The PTs would come in. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Mm -hmm. And it was mentally very hard for me to overcome. And then I got on this group on Facebook and talked with people. And they're like, you're going to be able to do this. You can do this. Like, you can find your light. And then my dad came, and he had made me this dream catcher. Um, dream catchers are kind of like a thing between me and my dad. He always mm -hmm. made them. And he'd like, and I mean, when he made them, like, he'd literally go outside and find, like, twigs and stuff and literally make them, like, from scratch. Mm -hmm. And he made me this, and I was obsessed with Harry Potter. Too. <laughs> he made me this dream catcher that had a quote from Harry Potter in it and he wood burned it into the dream catcher and it said happiness could be fine can be found in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light and he kind of left it there and then he was just like do with it as you may and I remember staring at this thing and I finally decided I can do this like I can get through it and you know I can be the same person that I was before in a wheelchair and so I finally decided to start learning what life in a wheelchair is like, which is not easy. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, basically my dad turned on the light that day and I've tried to keep it on ever since. That is amazing. He sounds like yeah. such an amazing guy. He really was. He was a really special guy. Do you still have the dream catcher? I do. <laughs> it's hung Good. up, um, near his urn. So it's, It'll always be there. That is so sweet. Yeah. That's yeah. so, so sweet. So I want to go back to the seizure that you yeah. had after that surgery. Is that, that wasn't the first seizure you've had, right? Because you have epilepsy? Correct. So um, I started having seizures, I guess, when I was around two. Um, they thought that, the doctors thought, no, again, remind you, I was in tiny Wisconsin with mm -hmm. not great medical care in the 1990s. <laughs> so things weren't exactly as they are now in 2020. But um, I started having seizures then, and they thought, oh, these are just febrile seizures, what you're talking about. It's probably when she just has fevers, give her Tylenol, it'll all be fine. And my, they obviously kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. Mm -hmm. Finally, my dad found a doctor that was willing to do an EEG. Um, and sure enough, the EEG showed she has constant epilepsy. She's having constant seizures. So they put me on um, a medication then that worked fairly well. They were confident that I'd outgrow it as I got older because most kids with epilepsy apparently do. 
I wasn't one of those kids. <laughs> I still have epilepsy. Um, as I've gotten older, they've adjusted the meds, and they've obviously come out with a lot more. And right now I take three different meds, and they keep it so well under control. I was used to having, like, at one point I was having eight seizures a day, and things were really hard. Now I can go usually six, seven months without a seizure. And the only thing that really typically kicks them off is if, like, I have an active infection or if I'm late taking my medication. Okay. But, yeah. So tell me about the incident that happened almost a month a month ago and maybe start with who Salem is so that <laughs> we know. <laughs> I have the most wonderful service dog. His name is Salem. He's a chocolate lab and I got him through um, a breeder here in Massachusetts. And it's actually a breeder that I met while I was in Tewksbury Hospital. They used to bring um, their therapy dogs in, which was also a chocolate lab that kind of got me through my time at Tewksbury. Um, and as, when I came out and I was in the group home, after I left the hospital, I ended up in a group home for also four years because I couldn't live on my own and I couldn't get like the constant required care by my family because they obviously had to go to work. So I was in a um, complex medical home, is actually what it's called, mm -hmm. and it's just for those with very complex medical issues. Mine, I was mainly there for my seizures cause, and, my, and my beds, but obviously you're not having beds events every day, so mm -hmm. more so there for my seizures. Um, and at one point, I was probably about three years into living there, and I was there for four and a half, and I was like, you know, I'm sick of being on all these restraints, like I want to actually be able to go out in the community, and they wouldn't let me because you can't, because you have epilepsy. What if you have a seizure? You know, how are you going to get help? How are you going to, you know, manage life pretty much? And I was so sick of it. I was like, well, what if I just get a service dog? And they're like, sure. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I looked at them like, seriously, we're like, well, we've never had a service dog in the program, but we can do that. If you procure a dog and get it trained, we can do the red tape and all that. Fast forward six months, I had the most amazing vets, people, family, everything. I got the service dog. He's Salem. He's two years old. And um, he has now made it possible. I, I moved out of the group home, and I live in my own apartment now. Very fresh, only like a month. <laughs> but he, his main job is to tell me when a seizure is going to happen. So he actually lets me know seven minutes ahead of time was his longest, like, recorded, that um, – seizures coming and so when he tells me that I had been able to get into bed and lay down and then what he would do is at the group home he would alert a staff member he'd go get a staff the staff member would come in I'd seize they'd time it you know normal thing then yeah. go on with our day if I was in public when I'd have one I'd lay down on the ground he'd his head and paws like underneath my head keep my head safe and then I'd wake up we'd go about you know our regular day so it was just his important job was keeping me safe, getting me out of the wheelchair so I wouldn't have a fall like before, and I'd be safe. Mm -hmm. So most recently, I was in my apartment, and um, he had alerted me that a seizure was coming. Um, I did not get to my bed on time because things were, again, it's a brand new apartment. <laughs> I hadn't quite figured everything out yet. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd just lay in my living room, which was a, it's well spaced out. But um, I didn't have the pillows like I normally would in a bed to keep me turned on my side. For anyone out there that ever sees someone have a seizure, please make sure they're on their side. Um, and what happened is I ended up aspirating, which means I vomited when I was seizing, and I choked on 
that vomit. And what ended up happening is um, I ended up going into respiratory arrest. Um, Salem couldn't do anything. So he went to the window in my apartment and just, and this is all something that I was told afterwards. This is obviously, mm -hmm. I'm not conscious for this, but he was at the window and he was barking and barking and barking. And I'm in a city in mass. Most people don't pay attention to things like that. Like just ignore the barking dog in the apartment and go away. Mm -hmm. This man stopped, noticed the dog and he, what he said is that he looked at this dog and this dog looked frantic. So he decided to go up. He laid down and looked and he saw me on the floor and he saw that I was blue. So this man called 911 and they're like, don't, you know, don't go into that apartment. We'll be there. And he's like, well, how long until you be there? They're like, probably about 10 minutes. He's like, I'm not waiting. Oh my they're gosh. like, well, they're like, well, you can't go in. Like you could have, like, there could be Corona there. You can't, you can't go in there. So he actually broke my door or my window and he climbed into my apartment. He saw me. He used a spoon and got the vomit and cleared my airway and began CPR. Oh my God. Point, yeah. And at this point, like he was saving my life. Um, the ambulance came, you know, he had no idea who I was. He lived in my building, but he, I mean, this is a building of over 800 apartments. So like we'd never crossed and he lives actually several floors above me. Um, and the only reason he went down that ramp that day, cause he lives in a separate area. So he never even uses the ramp. He uses the stairs. He's like, just kind of, you know, it was warm out and thought I'd spend a little more time outside and he saw me. So he saved my life. <laughs> and got me to the hospital. Um, they didn't know who I was. He didn't know who I was. They had no contact information. They had nothing. Um, so the hospital that I got sent to wasn't a normal one that I've ever even been to. So I essentially arrived there as like a Jane Doe. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know anything about beds. They didn't, you know, they didn't know anything. And this guy, his name is Darren. He, um, and back into my apartment and found out, you know, who I was and they contacted, he was able to contact my aunt. So my aunt was able to know, you know, that I was in the hospital and he, he literally like saved my life. Um, I was on a ventilator for three, almost four days. Um, I came off the end and obviously like they had noticed there was a range of other things at that point happening. Um, because I had gone into respiratory arrest. I'd also had two episodes of cardiac arrest on the way wow. there. Um, and they did a CT scan because they weren't sure if I had hit my head and they found that there was a lot of swelling on the brain. They didn't know what the deficits were going to be. They didn't even know if it was possible that I was going to wake up at that point. So when they woke me up to do a breathing test when you're still on the ventilator, they were kind of shocked that I was as mentally with it as I was. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, that, I guess that's kind of the rest of the story. About Spent about a little under a week there, and I decided to leave a little early because I was petrified of coronavirus um, and just kind of wanted to get home. Mm -hmm. And when I got home, and I wasn't able to visit my family at all during the time in the hospital either. And when I got home... Um, my aunt brought Salem, my service dog, and she had been talking with the neighbor this whole time. And she actually had the neighbor come down, um, Darren, 
So I was actually able to meet him oh. in person, which was very emotional. <laughs> and um, ever since, he's just been a lot of support. Like, he kind of reminds me a lot of my dad. He's yeah. around the age of my dad. And, like, he's come down. He's brought me, like, hand sanitizer. He's cooked me. He cooked me a birthday dinner because I was alone on my birthday. He um, <laughs> brings me Lysol wipes. <laughs> he's made me masks. <laughs> he comes down and he'll walk Salem. Like, he's just, he, I really think, like, my dad sent him. Like, <laughs> What a me. hero. Seriously. <laughs> Very much that so. That is he's, so amazing. Yeah. What yeah. has it been like being back in your, so, I mean, obviously you have the support from him. Yeah. Does it feel weird being in your apartment now? I know when I had my, my first <sighs> big mini stroke, it was really stressful being back. I was really nervous. Um, so when I got to my apartment, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect because they had told me, you know, that they innovated me in my apartment. So I was like, oh God. And then, you know, I had obviously there was aspirations. So I was like, oh God, am I going home to, you know, a scene with like, Vomit right. everywhere. I was like, what is happening? So when I got home, I actually went in and um, there were multiple tubes um, from where they tried to intubate me because they couldn't intubate me. And they were just sitting in the middle of my floor. And when I saw that, I kind of broke down. That's when I kind of had my like, oh my God, I almost died moment. It hadn't hit me until then. And I was picking up those tubes and throwing them away. And I was just like, Oh my God, like this, it was, yeah, it was hard. Um, yeah. Now that we're a couple weeks out, I feel better. Um, I went through and did a lot more uh, safety proofing. <laughs> I now have an automatic <laughs> fall detection so that, you know, if I fall, it automatically calls 911. I have mm -hmm. multiple things like listing, you know, what my medical conditions are. And I called the, hosp the hospital that I was in and explained you know who I was what my allergies are <laughs> like, yeah my whole condition so that I feel like at least a little safer but um it was definitely it was hard for the first few days I definitely had my moments where I just kind of broke down was like I made the worst decision of my life but then Salem would come up to me and just be like let's go for a walk <laughs> oh. and then it helped because like where at my apartment too there's this beautiful like little river um, thing that you can walk and it's about a, like a mile and a half and obviously I'm in my power chair so Salem's actually walking I'm just driving <laughs> and um, <laughs> and that helps clear my head like that kind of gives me a little bit of peace like when things start to feel a little like nerve-wracking mm -hmm. he picks up on it and he just lets me know and and we go out and we walk and I come back in and I call my family or talk to somebody and let me mm -hmm. realize I for sure am not alone so well, I think my dog just heard you talking about Salem because he started. <laughs> I don't know if you heard him or not. I thought I heard something. Yeah, that was my dog. <laughs> he's Still like, I wish I had a. Door. Yeah, he's like, I wish he would walk me by a river. <laughs> like, I just do laps around this neighborhood right now over and over. <laughs> no, that is seriously amazing. Like, I remember meeting Salem last year in DC. Yeah. And he's just so adorable I can't stand <laughs> he it <laughs> he is so sweet and he's come a long way since then too because when you met him he was still in training mm -hmm. um and now he's officially passed his like public access testing he's got his canine good citizen award test. that's amazing <laughs> he's got all of his stuff so he's 
he's a grown-up boy now since you met him. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm sure I will meet him again one day. Yes. <laughs> for sure. Most definitely. Um, before we finish up, um, yeah. have you had any vascular issues from your from your vets? I know you said that if you if it was possible for vets to manifest in one area, <laughs> it would be your GI tract. <laughs> but I was, you know, have you had any vascular issues? Yes. So um, I had a vertebral artery dissection about a year ago. Um, I had, I mean, I feel like I've no, I know a lot about this disease and the syndrome, but mm -hmm. because I, I feel like I know the GI tract a lot better than I know the actual vascular system. So when that first, like I first started having those symptoms, um, I didn't really know what it was. And then I talked with Sue and she's like, I really think you should get scanned. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I have VEDS. I need to like go do like the VEDS <laughs> protocol now. Like, okay. <laughs> Went to the ER, got myself scanned. They're like, you're having a dissection. I'm still sitting there like, oh God. And I felt like blank for a minute. I'm like, what, what, now what do I do? And I was like, oh, okay. Call Dr. Shalhoub, get everything, <laughs> you know, go through one, two, three. But um, that was kind of my biggest one. I do have actually a triple A, that um, an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Mm -hmm. I've had it since I was 16. We haven't operated on it mainly because I'm petrified. Um, I don't want to have any more surgery. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm just like the last time I went in for like, you know, something fixed on aneurysm, it didn't go so well for me. And so I just get it monitored twice a year. We keep an eye on it. And then obviously if I have any type of symptoms or like sudden pain or any changes, I guess I'll act on it then. Yeah. Not something the way I would advise for anyone else that's listening out there for <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is not a medical advice podcast. This is just Thank you, you yeah, sharing your story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is yeah, medical PTSD here. <laughs> <laughs> Which is totally fair. You have been through a lot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. What were the symptoms of your vertebral artery dissection? It started off with just a little bit of like dull pain. Um, I thought like I slept wrong. It was that first, like, you know how like when you sleep and you like, I don't know, have your like neck crooked or something, mm -hmm. you wake up and you're like, oh, just like turning. That's what I first started to feel. And again, I guess I just forgot I had beds and was like, I slept wrong. Like, oh, it doesn't feel good. And then it started like, um, I started having a headache and I was like, oh, that's really strange. And then out of nowhere, my right pupil just like got super dilated and it would not respond to light. Oh. And then my left one was pinpoint. Like you would have thought that, you know how like in TV shows you see them do that and it's like, oh, you're in a coma and you're dead mm -hmm. pretty much. But I was alive and talking <laughs> and I was kind of freaking out. And I'm like, what is going on right now? And um, I called Dr. Shalhoub was the first one that I called and sent her the picture. And she's like, yeah, you, you need to go and get a scan like now. And I was like, but I'm not really having any pain. She's like, you have pain in the neck. Are you having, I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, let go. I'm like, I, okay, yeah, okay. So then it was like, went to the emergency room, got scanned, they're like, and it's that. And I was like, okay, and I was like, and this whole eye thing, is it going to fix the, like, you know, it will. And yeah, it, it has. So, but it was just, it was just kind of strangely, like, I feel like I know everything about it. And if someone else mentions they're having this, I can be like, oh gosh, it's this. And then it's happening to myself. And I'm like, oh, do to do. It's nothing. Just another day. <laughs> no. <laughs> so everything, you didn't need surgery for it. It's stabilized no. and you're okay. No, it's, yeah, it's stabilized. And I've gotten a scan and they just said it's, it's all good now. So I'm like, 
great. Okay. <laughs> that God. is amazing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like I said before, you have truly been through so much and you're amazing <laughs> to talk to. Thank you. It's really Thank good you. to finally share my story and talk with you and <laughs> All yes. <laughs> and all this time we've both been waiting. <laughs> I know. I guess one of us just needs to speak up next time. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. But um, is there anything else? Like if you were, I guess you found out when you were a small child. Yeah. Is there anything so. that you would tell somebody either who has a small child who is just diagnosed or is just an adult newly diagnosed themselves that either you have learned or you think is a really good piece of advice? I think for parents that are like just telling their children, I want you to let them know that, or give, uh, let you know, I guess, as a parent, it's a lot easier to grow up with this syndrome than it is to suddenly be told when you're 19. Like a lot of you are like, oh my child, I'm so worried, you know, all of this. I can tell you I'm not, I wasn't traumatized at all. Like growing up, it was just kind of like, oh, okay, I have beds. You know, I need to be a little careful doing this. I need to take this pill every day. It was normal for me, and it, I didn't feel hindered. I didn't feel like, oh, my life is over. Like it was nothing like that, which I know, like, you know, for example, when I got put into the wheelchair or I got my colostomy when, you know, I was older, that was life, like, altering and horrible, which is what I'm assuming – feels like when you're diagnosed later in your life. Mm -hmm. When you have like a small child and, you know, they're diagnosed, you know, at birth or at four, it is so much easier. And I just hope that helps like with parents, like your child is not feeling, I'm assuming, you know, I didn't, it's not feeling horrible and like this whole life, their whole life just like, you know, ended. It's so much easier to grow up knowing you have beds as opposed to getting diagnosed later on in life. That's definitely my one takeaway, and I always try to let parents know because that was just the easiest thing for me. And if they have porcelain dolls. Yes. You can use was, that. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, everyone should just have a porcelain doll and kind of like break <laughs> it and glue it together. You know, and then one day you can just if something bad happens to you. Just be like, hey, you have a porcelain doll. You're going to be just like this. <laughs> oh, seriously, you're, you're amazing. And I, I totally agree with that. I think... You know, there are parts of me, because I wasn't diagnosed until I was 28, you know, there's parts of me that were like, yeah. man, if I was diagnosed earlier, you know. See, that's where I can't, that's where I can't wrap my head around. Like, I don't know how I would have coped if I was told later. Like, when the whole wheelchair thing, I went through a very dark period, because I knew what life was like before beds. Exactly. But, or before wheelchair. You know, growing up, I didn't know anything besides beds. Like, it was all beds. And just right. knew, okay. Totally like, normal. Wear this. Yeah, it was nothing life-altering. It wasn't life-ending. It just it felt normal to me. Yeah, you don't totally have to normal. find a new normal when you're four. No, exactly. And I really hope that some that I can give some comfort to, you know, parents at least. Thank you. Yeah. And again, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. This was Destiny sharing her story with Veds as a special episode for Reds for Veds Day. Stay tuned for more episodes. I release episodes of Staying Connected on the last Sunday of every month. And we'll talk to you soon.